Hi, this is Steve Hargadon. Welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, August 26th, 2011. Our special guest is Bob Compton, filmmaker and the producer of the Finland Phenomenon. Thanks for being here, Bob. So your mic went off. Uh, click it once and it should, there, it should go back on. Can you hear? Yep, good. Anyway, glad to have you here, Bob. Sure appreciate your coming on the show. The Future of Education is sponsored by Blackboard Collaborate. The front of their work on is Learn Central. It's also sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project. It's web20labs.com. Coming up in November, so fun, this library 2.011 free worldwide virtual conference that's coming up. Uh, over 2,000 people have signed up so far. What just a lot of fun to see the enthusiasm and interest in this topic. San Jose State University is the uh, core sponsor of that event. We're delighted that they've supported it. Also in November, the 2011 Global Education Conference, five days, also free, 24 hours a day. If you missed this party last year, please don't this year. Lots of fun. Coming up on the Future of Education uh, next week, Richard and Rebecca Dufour on uh, learning communities. Uh, uh, there's a little bit of a break while I'm traveling. Howard Gardner then comes on to talk about the unschooled mind. Sam Shaltain on the face of his book, Faces of Learning. Bob Gleiner on his movie, Lessons from the Real World. Uh, Cecilia D'Oliveira, uh, the director of MIT's Open Courseware, will be on the show. Then we have a special show on a successful iPads in the classroom project. Can't wait to talk about this. I've been very skeptical of iPads in the classroom, and hopefully I'll be proved wrong. Peter Cookson on a Children's Education Bill of Rights, and then Alan Blankstein on Improving Individual Schools, and lots more fun in the works. If you've missed the show, they are all recorded, and they're up on futureofeducation.com in full Illuminate versions and MP3 versions. Uh, Jeff Piontek talked about uh, education change and reform. Uh, Gary Lopez on uh, Hippocampus. Doug Rushkoff on Program or Be Programmed, which I've referred to several times in the last couple of weeks, so it's a book that stuck with me. Uh, Jim Mayfield on Humanitarian Education uh, Programs. Uh, anyway, lots of fun. Hopefully there's something there you'll be interested in. I'm going to give you all now permissions to indicate where you are on the whiteboard. Look for the star icon to the left of the map. Click on that, and then if you click on the whiteboard, that star should show up for you. And feel free to do a shout out in the chat. I know we've got lots of weird weather. I was in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday and experienced the earthquake there. Uh, I had to fly all the way from the D.C., a California boy, to experience an earthquake in Washington. I know there was an earthquake in Colorado, another in Peru. Lots of crazy weather and other things going on around the world. So let us know where you're listening from. New Zealand, Australia, British Isles. Not quite sure where in the Middle East that is, but hopefully you'll tell us. I thought we had someone from Finland on. <laughs> Wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we sure do appreciate your participation. And hopefully. You'll find something of value tonight. I sure have just from preparing. Bob, I just love this movie, and um, it precipitated my actually watching the second Two Million Minutes movie, which I had not seen before. I'd seen the original. Um, but I heard a story. I told somebody I was interviewing you, and they said that you had gotten stuck in Finland because of the volcanic activity. Is that a part of the story of this movie? Uh, actually, that did happen. I was not there on that trip. Uh, Dr. Wagner was there with my film crew, and they did get caught for, uh, they were there for about two and a half weeks before they could get out. And then I went back a month later with the film crew to uh, to continue the interview. So yeah, they got caught there for quite a while. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of the chronology here, uh, how you got connected with uh, Tony Wagner from Harvard, you know, sort of uh, the progression of of the films to this point, um, uh, maybe kind of give us a sense of the overview. Uh, sure. So, just to give you maybe one minute on my background, 
I was trained as, a, as an engineer, uh, worked for IBM, then went to Harvard Business School, and then spent 25 years as a high-tech entrepreneur and venture capitalist. I got interested in, uh, or motivated, to make my first film, Two Million Minutes, as a result of a 2005 trip to Bangalore, India, where at the time I had uh, 100 software developers working for um, one of my companies out of Chicago. And it was on that trip that I uh, spent a lot of time with the young people, all of them were in their 20s, and I discovered how well educated they were. Uh, not just in math and science, I would have expected that because I hired them out of uh, engineering schools, but they were had a very broad gauge um, knowledge. Uh, they could talk about Shakespeare, they could talk about world history, world geography, uh, and when I inquired as to where they got this knowledge, it was uh, universally in high school. And so uh, rather than coming back to the U.S., I stayed for another several weeks and visited high schools all around Bangalore. And what I realized, uh, I have two teenage daughters, I realized that my daughters, uh, despite going to a very expensive private school and being straight-A students, uh, were two to three years behind their Indian peers in math, physics, chemistry, biology, computer science, world history, world geography, and English grammar. And so I came back and changed how my own daughters were educated. Um, and then wrote a book about my experience, and then uh, I realized that you have to actually see it to believe it. And uh, and then I made a subsequent trip to China and discovered the same thing about Chinese high schools. So I made the first film, Two Million Minutes, which follows um, two high school seniors, a boy and a girl, in the U.S., India, and China. And that uh, film is quite successful, uh, not always... Uh, <laughs> not always universally welcome. Uh, in fact, Howard Gardner was one of my harshest critics. Uh, you've got him coming on in a couple of weeks. He was one of my harshest critics when I screened for the faculty at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. But what I realized was um, it was pretty clear that American students are never going to have the drive and intensity uh, around education that Indians and Chinese will. Um, but our kids are going to need to be competitive with um, the best educated young people around the world. And uh, India and China each have four times the number of students we have. We have roughly 55 million, 56 million K-12 students. Um, India has uh, 212 million and China has 200 million. And those are just the ones in school. They have another couple hundred million that would like to be in school that are right now caught in poverty. And so I started um, talking with people about uh, uh, you know, what might be a, a good model for the U.S. and, and American kids to, um, to uh, get up to the global standard, which is pretty clear we weren't from the, the PISA test. So I was actually speaking at an education conference in New Orleans, and uh, Tony Wagner was speaking there also, and I had read his book, The Global Achievement Gap, and we started talking uh, afterwards and then several subsequent conversations, and it was pretty obvious. We looked at the PISA scores, and Finland has ranked number one in, in uh, math, science, and reading uh, well, since 2000. They got, they got uh, beat this year by, um, by uh, China, uh, and also uh, edged out in reading by uh, Korea. But it was pretty clear that Finland had uh, an excellent education system. So uh, Tony and I decided he, would, he had been invited to go over and speak uh, to the Finland um, uh, education leadership for their uh, Project 2020, which is a, uh, this was a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, they were laying out their strategy for how to improve their education uh, over the next 10 years. And so I said, well, let's, let me send a camera crew to that trip, and then I'll come over later. I was actually over in Asia at the time, and I'll come over later, and we'll continue the, the interviews, and then we'll make a film about Finland. And uh, so that's how it came about. I wasn't aware of the book. What was the name of the book? Well, the book is called Blogging Through India, and it's available on my website, and it's it's, it talks about the education, what I learned about education in India, but, um, but it also, I traveled pretty widely in the country and tried to capture the, um, the uh, uh, kind of the essence of the culture, the Indian culture. And it's obviously an enormous country, 1.1 billion people, and so 
it's impossible to capture all of it, but I was trying to get the essence of um, what what uh, what India was all about because I felt most Americans weren't aware of it. So I, I published the book first and, and then uh, started producing the films. Fascinating. In uh, Two Million Minutes of the 21st Century Solution, you really uh, look in depth at a school called BASIS. Um, how closely do the principles of BASIS align with what you found in Finland? Uh, they align uh, reasonably closely. Uh, the, the two founders, um, uh, Olga and Michael Block, uh, Michael is, uh, uh, was a professor of economics at uh, Arizona University, and Olga um, was, uh, she was in Czechoslovakia, uh, and then when the wall fell, she was among a group of Czechs who were working to bring the free enterprise system to her country, and she and Michael met and, and married, and then she moved over, they moved to uh, Tucson, or, or he lived in Tucson, she moved there, and she was, from previous marriage, had two daughters, and went to enroll her daughters in American uh, American middle school and was appalled at how terrible the education was compared to the education she had received in communist uh, Czechoslovakia. And so uh, what she and Michael decided to do was start a charter school. And I think that was when they started basis school in, in 1998. And it was, what they did is they kind of surveyed the, the world and took uh, what they thought was the best um, from uh, the Finnish system from other systems in Canada, other systems in Europe. Uh, they looked at Asia, incorporated a little bit of that uh, in terms of they uh, teach Mandarin, for example. But the, but the, the most um, telling uh, similarity between the teachers at the basis school and the teachers in Finland are their, um, their education credentials. In Finland, to teach at the middle school and high school level, you have to have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in the subject you teach, and then one year of pedagogical training. And uh, all of the teachers at the basic school have bachelor's and master's degrees in the subject they're teaching. For example, high school physics, the, the young man that teaches high school physics at Basis Tucson uh, has a bachelor's and master's degree in physics and then has uh, has a great, uh, it, it's great joy from uh, being with young people and teaching uh, and then has gone through the pedagogical training that uh, the basis school developed for their for their teachers. What's interesting about basis is it was started in 1998 in Tucson, which is not, uh, which is actually you know a relatively poor uh, area of the country, Pima uh, County being quite uh, quite poor. And uh, they took just it's an open enrollment. They took just uh, average kids from all, kind of all walks of life, mostly uh, low income, uh, a few middle income. And, um, and quite a few Hispanics uh, because of the heavy Hispanic population there. And uh, uh, 10 years later, Newsweek ranked them uh, the number one high school in America. And what struck me as curious was uh, they went from startup to being number one in the country in 10 years, and nobody went to find out why. Uh, the Gates Foundation didn't go. Uh, Broad Foundation wasn't there. Fordham Institute didn't show up. The U.S. Department of Education didn't send anybody. Um, the only one who went to see why was me, and so that's why I decided to make the documentary. That moment at which the, they're talking about the fact that nobody went to to see the school is really one of the powerful moments in the school, in the movie. Uh, the other uh, almost emotional moment in in that movie, we're talking about the two million minutes, the twenty first century solution were the quotes from Lisa Keegan about the difficulty of actually doing it the right way, of the, of the cultural kind of barriers that, that existed there. Um, I, don't, I don't want us to get too sidetracked there. We'll come back to that and, and once we sort of talk more about uh, Finland. So at the beginning of Finland Phenomenon, you, um, you kind of using quotes showcase some contrast with our existing narratives about school and school reform. Um, what, what is going on there? What, what do we believe about improving schools that Finland kind of breaks? Um, 
I guess a little bit of history about the, the, the about Finland and the Finnish education system. So, coming out of World War II, uh, Finland, like um, all of Europe, with the exception of Switzerland, uh, was uh, you know, decimated by World War II, and then they had the compounding difficulty of, um, although the Soviets never occupied. Um, Finland and didn't bring it in, into the Soviet Union, there was a lot of pressure and a lot of tension with the Soviets. In the 1960s, Finland's economy was 60% uh, wood products, uh, basically cutting down trees and, and cutting up lumber and then selling lumber. The country was very poor. Uh, there were a few wealthy, but mostly, uh, mostly people were quite poor. And they had no immigration. Uh, nobody wanted to move to Finland. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but probably the winters being the main one. And so the leadership, the political and um, uh, kind of the intelligentsia and the political leaders realized that the only way to raise the standard of living of their, um, of their people was to increase the level of education. So they uh, took some pretty radical steps in, in the early 70s, uh, the first one being they dramatically raised the standard to be a teacher in Finland. And as I mentioned earlier, they set the, they set the, uh, the standard to require to teach at the grade school level uh, both a bachelor's and master's degree in education and to teach at middle school and secondary school. Um, you, you had to have a bachelor's and master's degree in, uh, in the subject you were teaching. They also implemented a very unique way of um, uh, conveying the pedagogical training. Uh, there's the um, student teachers spend very, very little time in, in a lecture hall. They spend their time following a master teacher who teaches the subject they're going to teach, for example, mathematics. And anywhere from four to seven student teachers will follow that master teacher and work with, with him or her throughout uh, a full year. And, and that accomplishes a number of things, um, which we can go into more detail later. But, but the, the, the net effect is you have a very highly educated um, teacher uh, teaching a subject that they know a lot about and are quite passionate about. So uh, they also, um, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, early 70s, uh, just about every college in Finland could grant prior to this the change in standards, could grant a degree in education. They, they stopped that and narrowed it down to just the eight top universities. And those are the only ones where teachers could be trained. So uh, but what run, kind of cuts against the grain of where America is and seems to be going more intensely every day, uh, they do almost no high stakes testing. They do test, you know, they have quizzes and tests, but they don't have the kinds of high-stake tests you see in, for example, Washington, D.C., where I live, where, you know, with the DCAS uh, t uh, test, um, teachers' careers are at stake with those tests. Uh, they do have one test at, um, at uh, when they're senior year. In order to get a high school diploma, you have to pass the competency test across uh, all subjects. Uh, they also assign very little homework. They have a very different approach in the classroom, and it, you have to be in the classrooms to, uh, to experience it. Uh, and I try to capture it in the film. I hope I was successful doing that. They don't teach a subject to the students. They help the students discover the knowledge themselves. So, for example, the, in the film, rather than describing what the Pythagorean theorem is, they use a series of exercises that help the students come to their own discovery of that. And the teachers talk a lot um, in, in the interviews and in, in, in my interactions with them a lot about um, helping children discover new knowledge or create new knowledge. And, and so, uh, so that's one kind of very unique aspect. And it's, uh, again, I hope I capture it in the film. It's, it's, uh, it's very different than, than what you see in the U.S. Uh, school systems or, frankly, in school systems elsewhere in the world. The, um, the, the second difference is they don't assign very much homework. Uh, students might have uh, two to three hours of homework a week uh, through middle school, and in high school it, it, it may get up as, as much, uh, uh, you know, close to maybe an hour a night. But it's not the uh, heavy, heavy 
uh, loads of homework that um, that we assign in American schools. So they don't do a lot of testing. They don't um, do a uh, a lot of homework. Um, and, uh, and and school is is a much more relaxed uh, environment than uh, that you see in the U.S. The, the students refer to their teachers by their first name. There's a there's a real sense of camaraderie that you feel in the classroom there, and uh, as opposed to a kind of an authoritarian figure, and then the, the students, it's it's much more um, much more collaborative and um, and kind of and there's just a lot of mutual respect. So. I guess those would be the, the, the quick things I would mention. We can again, we can go into as much detail as uh, as you would like, Steve. Uh, you know the um, description of the culture of the classroom that did come through in the film, and it also came through very much in the um, in the look at basis school. When we look at sort of large cultural change around institutions, did you do you have a sense of kind of practically how that happened, were there certain individuals who were able to tell a really compelling narrative in Finland that captured everybody? Because it feels like, you know, with BASIS being highly successful, that that story just didn't get out. It doesn't get out. In fact, there are barriers to getting out. Did you have any sense in Finland of how that narrative changed? I guess I need you to clarify a little bit when you say the narrative. I'm not sure I follow you. Well, um, you know, uh, I think of W. Edwards Deming as being an individual who was able to kind of uh, really tell a different story about manufacturing and quality, and and gained a following of people who adopted that vision of education. So, at a very on a very practical level, even with the pressures faced by Finland, was there somebody who was really good at communicating who helped? bring everybody together around the common goal of how to shift education there? To, uh, from the research I did and, and all the interviews I conducted, there was not a single leader. If, that's, if, I, if I understand where you're headed, there was not a single leader, for example, in the 70s who articulated a vision of what needed to change in order to raise the education level uh, of, of the population and thereby raise the, the standard of living. Uh, and Finland is not a, a, a country, from what I can understand, and from my observations and, and having been there a number of times, is not a country where you have um, kind of standout leaders. It's a much more uh, collaborative um, type of society where people work together, they're, but they're not kind of the superstars that everybody follows. It's a very different, um, different culture that way. From the, the research I did and the, and the, the uh, conversations I had with the uh, Minister of Education and, and others in, who've been obviously involved with education for decades, it, it would, the, the change has resulted from an open dialogue among um, leaders from you know, business and education and, and, um, and, and the political field. Um, in the, in the 60s and 70s, and, the, and that debate and that discussion happened over about a five to seven year period before they started implementing those changes. And then even after implementing those changes, you know, Finland has a, a strong teachers union. And so what they did was they, they raised the bar of what it was required to get to become a teacher. But then they had, you know, lots of teachers, all the teachers who, who had been, um, who had become teachers under the previous uh, set of standards. And uh, Finland is not a country that would then, uh, you know, take radical steps and fire people. So what happened is it took literally 25 years for the the teachers um, who had become teachers under the previous standards for them to eventually move through and retire and to uh, replenish the uh, the teacher um, core with teachers uh, who had been educated to the, the much higher standards. The, the happy result of that, from their perspective, was they reached kind of their their peak educational performance in the year 2000, which was the year of the first PISA exam, and then they ended up being number one in the world. So it looked like something that happened kind of suddenly, but the reality was, uh, and you hear it in the in the film uh, repeatedly, they talk about they had to learn to trust each other. You know, they had to trust the teachers, the teachers had to trust the students, the parents had to trust the system, and, and there's this, this foundation of trust that resulted in, uh, the result of which was this extraordinary improvement in, um, 
in the education of their children. But it took and one of the, 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 the principals in one of the schools says it very clearly. He said it took us 25 years to learn how to trust. And, um, and, and so that, that, that's probably the most glaring difference in, in Finland. So, so there's a teacher, the, the teacher um, uh, requirements of what it takes to become a teacher, but then uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard the word trust in a positive vein in, um, in American education. You know, our, the American system is so broken and, and there is such little trust that um, it's unlikely we could accomplish what the Finns were able to accomplish. Are there cultural um, characteristics in the United States that make that hard for us? Are we more um, adversarially oriented in our politics or in the way that we do things than Finland? Um, can you imagine a path for us to take that would allow us to, to, to go through the same kind of process and arrive at that sort of consensus? Well, I think you just have to look what's happened in Washington in the last two months to realize we are a highly confrontational society. What was unique about Finland was their, the, the, um, the survival and, and, um, and economic success of the entire population rested on their ability to make, to, to dramatically improve how they educated their children and to significantly raise the uh, the intellectual capabilities uh, of of their uh, of their youth. If they hadn't done that, uh, they would still be chopping wood. And they'd have a you know, and that would be their economy. And, and it's kind of an, an interesting parallel is back in the 60s. Um, so Finland, 60% of their of their um, economy was uh, was based essentially on natural resources. Uh, in the 1960s in West Virginia, 60% uh, of their economy was based on uh, natural resources. One society decided they were going to raise the education level at the level of their people, and today uh, wood accounts for uh, about 12 to 15% of their, or agricultural products and natural resources account for about 12 to 15%, and high tech accounts for 35%. In the case of West Virginia, they didn't raise their educational standards and they are still heavily dependent on, um, on natural resources and they are a relatively poor, uh, poor state economically. So it's, in Finland's case, they realized if they didn't make the changes that they would lead, their, their, their children and their society would lead lives of uh, relative poverty and struggle. America, you know, we've been so dominant since World War II and so wealthy that we don't, you know, haven't had the same impetus to to make the kind of changes um, we need to make. So that I, I don't know if that answers your question. Hopefully it does. Well, we're exploring this, and I'm and I'm in, in your helping us to do so. And you know, and again, I really love the film and appreciate the you know, kind of asking questions that we may not have full answers for, but are trying to figure out. So. Um, the, the medium of film, and there obviously have been several films in the last year or two that have gained some visibility. Um, um, Race to Nowhere. Um, <laughs> now I'm blanking. You know, uh, what's our what's the you know we're, oh, waiting Man. for Superman. Yeah, right. So uh, as you sort of looked at film to. Um, give voice to these different thoughts about education. How have you responded to the other films? Well, I think um, in different ways. I mean, I had, had different reactions uh, to each film. I, I would say that the Waiting for Superman, the cartel, and others that, that strike me more as attacks on the education uh, system in America or attacks on uh, unions in particular, uh, you know, I, I, interesting. I don't see that they're you know, that helpful, um, but uh, you know, I guess that's that's perhaps not the intent of the film. Uh, Race to Nowhere, Vicky's movie, uh, I I think makes some very very good points, and uh, about the pressures that uh, that American teens. Uh, feel they're either put on themselves or put on by their parents or put on by society. I happen to believe, um, and one of the interesting differences 
uh, in, in America as compared to the other top performing, or as compared to the top performing educational systems. Um, I've actually categorized it into what I call the five C's of educational excellence. The first being culture, and we can come back and talk about any of these if you want. Culture, credentials of teachers, curriculum, college expectations, and choice. And so I want to touch just briefly on college expectations. To get into college in India or China or Korea, Singapore, Finland, uh, you know, the top performing countries, it's the college application is your name, your GPA, the school you went to, and your score on the entrance exam. Uh, to get into, my daughter uh, took a, a summer program uh, when she was in high school at, uh, at Brown University and a forensic science program and really, really enjoyed it and said, you know, Dad, I really, really want to go to Brown. What do I need to do? And I had to say, well, hon, you know, it's, uh, you know, colleges work in mysterious ways. I, I can't tell you exactly, yet, but for sure you have to take as many AP classes as you can and score high. You probably ought to be in student government. You should be, you know, uh, continue your athletics, say, uh, year-round uh, swimming. It would be great if you were in, you know, in some of the plays, uh, you know, maybe have some leads in the play. You've got to do volunteer work uh, to at least give the illusion of caring. Uh, you know, these are all the things that colleges are going to look for. So she did all those things and submitted the applications and got accepted to Vanderbilt Northwestern and got rejected by Brown. She said, Dad, why did that happen? I said, "Hun, I have no idea. And that, that anxiety that, that our high school children experience I think is captured very well in the race to nowhere. Uh, it, 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 there's a lot of pressure on students in India and China, Korea, for example, Singapore, Taiwan, Japan. But in, in all of those countries, the, the, the pressure is very directed. You know what it takes to get into the top universities in your country. And in America, our kids are under all kinds of pressure. They're overscheduled. They're doing all kinds of things. They're trying to check all the boxes that they think colleges want because they have no idea exactly how to get into the college of their choice. And I think anyway. So I think I, I, I thought race to nowhere uh, really uh, put a sharp point on uh, on that issue. Uh, we interviewed Vicky on the show, and, and there was some agreement as well that. Um, she showcased the pressures, but that doesn't mean that rigor and that level of scholarship isn't valuable. It's just when there's no good solid purpose, then it becomes stressful. Um, because certainly you've done a good job of showcasing high levels of achievement, probably similar amounts of expectations and work, but that result in feeling really good about yourself. Exactly, and I, and I think that's where I think that's why we see so many of our, our teens who are, you know, have uh, you know, a lot of psychological problems and bulimia and, and um, you know, a lot of drinking and other problems because they feel all this pressure and they have no way to respond to the pressure. They don't know exactly what they should do. And the parents, and I can't, you know, our parents can't tell them because we don't know exactly, you know, because admissions departments work, work in, that, you know, in mysterious ways. You don't know this, Bob, but my dad was dean of admissions at both Stanford and Princeton. So we've talked about that as well, and there's lots of history. Hey, two of the really common criticisms of looking at Finland are that it's a very small country and that it's very uh, homogeneous. So how have you kind of um, approached those two comments? Yeah, those are those are the. Uh kind of the knee-jerk reactions when anybody talks about Finland. Uh, here's how I look at it. Finland is 5.5 million people. So let's talk about the size issue first. 5.5 million people. And uh, when I sent my film to Joel Klein, he sent me uh, an email back saying, you know, nice film. We have nothing to learn from Finland. It's too tiny because we're a country of 300 million. Well, you know, that's not quite accurate. Finland is 5.5 million people with, uh, with a, a curriculum for that country. America doesn't have a federal education system. We have 50 education systems. In fact, one might argue with 17,000 school boards, we have even more than 50, but let's, let's leave it at the 50 states. When you look at the 50 states and start to break the states down and look at them much more individually, 33 U.S. states are the same size or smaller than Finland. 
So when you start to compare, for example, Indiana, which is about the same size as Finland, or Colorado, you, you are now looking at apples to apples in terms of size. The, the, the school system in each state is set by the state legislature and, uh, and the governor. And, it's, uh, and then the administrative rules are set typically, it's not true, you know, <laughs> there are 50 different systems, but frequently it's set by the superintendent of schools. So any state that is 5.5 million or smaller, I think, can reasonably compare itself to Finland and should ask the question, you know, I was just speaking yesterday in, in Colorado to an audience of 500, you know, Colorado is slightly smaller than Finland. It's uh, demographically, it's uh, it's it's not as homogeneous as uh, as Finland, but it's not wildly uh, diverse. Uh, it you know it basically has it has a, hot, a, a reasonably large and growing Hispanic population. But um, but you look at Indiana as an example; it's roughly the same size as Finland. Uh, it's 88% white. Uh, you know, Finland is 96%. Um, so, so I I think it's it does does ourselves we do ourselves a disservice if we um, uh, you know kind of out of hand say well Finland's small we're big and therefore we have nothing to learn it's just not accurate we have 33 states that have probably a lot to learn from Finland and and I think one can and, and in the film I use the, the example of Minnesota uh, where I compare Finland to Minnesota they are almost exactly the same size they are almost exactly the same in terms of their diversity or, or lack thereof and both of them have Scandinavian roots, and yet Minnesota isn't ranked number one in the world in math, science, and reading. And I think, and yet they spend more money than Finland per student. So the logical question is, you have similar size, similar demographics, similar um, ethnic heritage, spending more money and achieving dramatically less in terms of the educational results. So. Anyway, that's how I how I respond to uh, to those two comments. And that comes out um, in, in basis school specifically the the fact that even though students come from different backgrounds, um, one of the founders says you know, somewhat specifically, you know, we really just don't see a difference in their ability to uh, achieve. What's the um, why do we have such a hard time? Do you think in the United States? Looking at a school like Basis, why why weren't they being visited by foundations? Why do what, what is it culturally or cognitively uh, that goes on that stops us from seeing those good examples and then doing something about them? I think it, um, it it's different depending on the institution. The thing I've learned uh, about foundations, and I served on the uh, uh, the board of trustees of the Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City, which is a about a $1.8 billion foundation. I've served on that board for nine years, so I have some understanding of what I call foundation think. Um, and then I've had some interaction with both the Gates and the Broad Foundation. And what I've learned is, with large foundations in America, particularly in education, if something is not their idea, then it can't be a, it, then it's, it can't be a good idea. Uh, so the, the basis school was not funded by a foundation actually had no outside funding. It was just a husband and wife. And, uh, and you know, the school's in a strip mall in Tucson across the street from the Office Depot and Baja Fresh Sandwiches. So it doesn't look the part of what a foundation would be proud of and uh, because foundations are very much image conscious. And so I think when it, when it comes to foundations, uh, the reason they haven't pursued, and, 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 and base is just one example. To me, it's the most glaring example of a, a, something that's highly successful in education that serves children at a very high level, uh, of, you know, that educates them up to the global standard. Kids from low and, and middle-income families, often from broken homes, a couple of homeless families, um, and, and so it breaks my heart that, that our country doesn't look at something like that and embrace it. Embrace it, but they're not the only um, excellent charter school that is uh, is doing amazing things and is generally ignored by the educational establishment establishment and by the foundations. Um, why the U.S. Department of Education doesn't go look at it just absolutely baffles me. I, I cannot explain it because in in industry in my business and uh, career, if if a if a company 
went from startup to dom you know to being the number one in its industry in ten years, I mean everybody in the industry would be down there trying to figure out how they did it. And for some reason in education and, and you know, Secretary Duncan talks about um, how the charter schools are the laboratories of innovation where new things can be done and we can learn from those and put them, you know, roll them out into our education system as you know, that's a lot of crap. You know, I, I can't name a single uh, a, a single thing that's been done by any of the best charter schools in America that the rest of the educational establishment has, has adopted. So frankly, what charter schools are is it, it, it's, it's allowing a little bit of choice out on the fringes to try and keep, uh, keep the masses happy while the, the, everybody really ends up staying in the, in the you know, 99 or 97% uh, education system that's government run. So in the 21st Century Solution, uh, Lisa Keegan, who is the former superintendent of education in Arizona, you know, gets a fair amount of screen time, talking about not just being ignored, but sort of almost the act of attacking of people who do things differently. Is there a degree to which our conception of schooling has um, become kind of an emotional, generational, um, uh, I don't know. I'm not quite sure how to phrase that, but the, the, the perpetuation and uh, and what, how do you account for the kind of emotional attacks that Basis saw? Well, um, the American education K through 12 education system, in general, is uh, is, is mediocre compared to um, the top performing systems around the world. Um, and and it's very bureaucratic and obviously highly unionized um, and uh, I would say some essentially sclerotic I and mean, it's, you know, it's it just doesn't it's, it's set in its ways and when something pops up that is is uh, better than the, the norm uh, particularly if it's significantly better than the norm it makes the, the rest of the uh, educational uh, uh, system look bad. So, and I saw this. I, I sold one of my companies to a Fortune 500 company that shall remain nameless. But uh, what I saw was these giant bureaucracies that um, are set in their ways. Uh, they actually, um, if anything entrepreneurial gets into the system, and anything that, that, that threatens to do better than the rest of them. It's like these antibodies come after it and try and kill it. And I saw this in, in, you know, in a, a very large corporation uh, that everybody, nobody wants to look bad. And the way to make sure nobody looks bad is if there's anything that looks good, you try and kill it. And I see that all the time in the U.S. education system. I see it in Washington, D.C. constantly where I spend a lot of time and I, I sponsor some inner city chess teams and inner city robotics teams so I spend quite a bit of time in the schools and if anything if, if anybody pops their head up and is doing something better than the rest uh, boy they get attacked with the with the uh, ferocity that's uh, it's almost hard to, hard to believe so we're going to move to Q&A in just a minute uh, be thinking if you have questions for Bob you're welcome to take the microphone or, or put your question in the chat. If you've put a question in the chat and I've missed it, I hope you'll uh, put it back in again and, and we'll try and make sure we catch it. Bob, um, what kind of lessons do you hope we'll take away from the film? Um, what's your hope um, for what happens from this point forward based on your having documented what, what uh, is happening in Finland? What I hope is that uh, at least one state and one governor and one um, legislature and, and a, a, a superintendent, state superintendent of schools will say, you know what, our, our state, we can be among the best in the world and we're going to be among the best in the world. So how do we go about doing that? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to change our culture. The, high, the culture in American high school is not primarily an academic culture. It is, candidly, primarily a sports culture. Uh, and just to give kind of the most egregious example that I've ever seen is in Allen, Texas. Uh, for a high school of 3,200 students, they are in the process of building a $65 million football stadium. That sends very clear messages. 
the way culture is, is built, and I've done this many times when I've done corporate turnarounds, you've got to get the culture right. Culture trumps everything. In the words of Dean Kamen, the, the founder of the, uh, the inventor of the Segway and the founder of the U.S. First Robotics Program, society gets what it celebrates. And the way we celebrate things are through symbols, rhetoric, recognition, and rewards. And they have to align. I'll give you one example of the complete misalignment of, of, of symbolism. Secretary of Education Duncan is giving a speech in an auditorium in a high school in Boston, exhorting the kids to study hard because they're going to be competing against students not in Buffalo, but in Beijing and Bangalore. What symbol does he leave behind when he leaves that school? He leaves a signed basketball. That's a misalignment of your rhetoric and your symbols. So I'm hoping a, a, a governor will say, we are going to start recognizing and rewarding the young academic achievers in our, in our school system and in our society and in this state because those students are going to be the ones that invent the new technologies that create the new companies that build the new industries that employ people in that state. So they're going to change the culture first. The next thing they're going to do is they're going to have the courage to say, if you're going to teach in high school in our state, you have to have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in the subject you're teaching. And they're going to set that as a standard. Uh, the next thing that they're going to do is they're going to say, our kids can't possibly be, be um, educated to the global standard if our curriculum is not up to the global standard. And so they're going to raise the, the curriculum up to the global standard. And that's very relatively easy to do. I mean, you can look at the Finnish uh, curriculum, uh, which is published in English. The, the uh, national curriculum in India is published in English. Uh, you can get it in great detail. At, in, now in China, yeah, it's in Mandarin, but uh, I had it translated. It's not that expensive to have it translated. So they're going to put the curriculum up to the global standard. The next thing they're going to do is they're going to say, in our state colleges, we are not going to have the, the, the common application where you write essays about useless things. We're going to let people in based on their academic uh, achievement. And then the last thing is there's going to be choice. Kids learn different ways. Uh, American students have less choice than any of the students in the top performing countries. And I can go into a lot of detail on that. But for example, in India, 50% of all the students uh, in school in India, so 100 million students, go to private uh, for-profit schools. They have a lot of choice. Now it's expensive, absolutely. But you know what? Indian families realize that that's important to their children. So in the Indian household budget, after food, shelter, and clothing, the fourth largest expense is education. In China, you're able to transfer your child to another uh, school in, your, in that city, and the money, call these commies crazy, the money travels with the student. Um, in, um, in Finland, you, have, you can also transfer between schools, and they also have a, just an outstanding uh, Votech program. So you, again, have a lot of choice. American students have uh, almost no choice. You know, there are only 3,000. Uh, charter schools out of the 100,000 schools we have. So I'm hopeful that some governor and the leadership within some state that really cares about their children and really wants their children to be competitive in the 21st century, and we're seeing a, 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 a quick sidebar, we're seeing a hollowing out of the middle class right now in America, and the jobs that are moving, that, that, are, that are disappearing during the recession aren't coming back. They're moving overseas or they're being um, uh, automated and uh, we're going to face some very serious financial uh, and economic issues in the years ahead. But some governors are going to say, we are going to make a change for the better. We're not going to try and copy the states around us. We're going to do something different, and we're going to change our culture, our credentials of teachers, our curriculum, our college expectations, and choice. That's what I hope happens. Bob, is there a state that you think is close to this or getting ready for it? Yes, the state of Indiana, led by Governor Mitch Daniels uh, and with the uh, state school superintendent, Tony Bennett. Uh, they have made more changes in the last legislative session, uh, moving their educational system toward the global standard than any other state by far. Okay, so if you've got a question for Bob, you can raise your hand. To raise your hand, that's the third icon over in the participant area. If you hover over it, you'll see a raise hand a message come up. If you raise your hand, I'll give you the microphone. Larry, I'm going to give you the mic, but I'm actually going to ask Royce's question first that came in the chat. Uh, Bob Royce asked, 
Assume we increase teacher education standards, we change the way we train teachers, and we change the way we teach our students. How long will it take before 80% of students benefit from that type of teacher? Well, if Finley is the model, it will likely take 15 to 20, 20 years before you see a change. But you know what? America always wants a quick fix. Guess what? We didn't get into this mess quickly, and we're not going to get out of it quickly. Hey, Larry, I've given you microphone capability. To turn your mic on, you click on the talk button. I think you know what to do. Not hearing anything, Larry. So that's the talk button at the top left of your screen in the audio and video area. You should see your mic come on. If maybe your mic might not be configured. If it's not, you can go up to the audio setup wizard. That's under tools. There oh, yeah, there you are. Okay, I was just wondering: uh, is there any difference in the technologies that they use in Finland in the classroom or with students? And are the classrooms structured differently, or is it just a different way that uh, teachers are, who's allowed to uh, be teachers, how they're trained, and the curriculum? Thank you. Yeah, that's a good question, and the answer is uh, yes. How they teach is is quite different. And I'll just give you a, a kind of a couple of examples. Um, there is a lot more project-based learning in Finland, um, and where they have a project and where teams come together and work on things as a team. Um, they also have uh, pretty pervasively, certainly in their high schools, they use a system called Moodle. M-O-O-D-L-E, which stands for Modular Object-Oriented Digital Learning Environment. It was a, it's a system created by uh, a gentleman in Perth, Australia, um, who has both a PhD in education and a PhD in computer science. And it allows the students to work on projects collaboratively online. And, um, and so they, they, have, they do a lot more project work. And then in the classroom, uh, I mentioned they don't have a lot of homework. I, I should have mentioned their classes are also 75 minutes long. Uh, and the reason is, uh, actually one of the, one of the students uh, states it in my film, because the first five to ten minutes of every class, people are getting settled down. And the last five to ten minutes, people are packing up. And, and when they had only 50-minute classes, they really didn't get much done. So you know, the thing said, well, let's make the classes longer. First, they experimented with 90 minutes. That seemed to be too long, cut it to 75 minutes. During that time, when they're doing this knowledge discovery uh, that I mentioned earlier, the, the master teacher is able to go around and give a lot more individual attention as the students work on problems there um, in the class. So there's not a lot of lecture. Um, the teacher moves uh, throughout the class. The classes, um, they, they configure the class the way that you know, the teacher and the students want. It's not, uh, not always uh, you know, set up with all desks facing front. So um, I would say that the, the key things that I saw were lots of project-oriented, lots of hands-on activities, lots of team efforts, uh, a very sophisticated um, uh, computer system that, that allows project work and project sharing, uh, which actually I've seen in, in a number of charter schools around the country as well. I've not seen it in, in any um, uh, government-run schools, but I'm sure it exists. And then the, the master teacher moving around and able to give much more individualized attention to each student. Maybe somewhat related or maybe already answered, uh, there was a question in the chat, what significant technology tipping points have there been in the Finnish education system? Um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not quite sure I understand the question, Steve. Uh, they, but they, uh, uh, they adopt new technologies pretty quickly. I, and again, in the film, you'll see it. I was amazed to see a class on um, marketing, uh, which is part, was part of their, uh, their Botech program, which is a, you know, a very rich, uh, well-funded, and uh, well-taught um, program. 45% of all uh, Finnish high school students take the vocational tech um, uh, avenue and, and get so much training and skill that they're able to get great paying jobs coming right out of high school. But um, anyway, so this one class was about marketing, and, and they were on Facebook. And again, it gets to this issue of trust. The teachers trust the students not to be goofing off on Facebook. And, uh, and so they were doing research on Facebook. And the teacher makes a comment. When a new technology comes out, we need to adopt it quickly, because no one knows where it's going to go. And so our children have to 
um, have to embrace it and learn about it. So I, 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 there was not kind of one moment where they decided they were going to put all kinds of technology in the, in the classroom. Uh, it's, it's constantly evolving, and they embrace new technologies uh, with, incredible, uh, with incredible rapidity. So if you have a question for Bob, we probably have time for one or two more. It looks like Larry's raised his hand again. Larry, I'm giving you the mic. Go ahead. Uh, was there any, can you hear me? I can. In how they treated uh, or incorporated librarians into their system, the school librarian and technology experts? Um, yes, I didn't. I didn't cover it specifically in the film, but it's mentioned uh, a couple times. But the schools work very closely. Uh, they do have school libraries, but they also work very closely with the um, the public libraries and very closely with museums and art galleries. There's a lot of um, uh, student trips to museums, but it's not just showing up and walking around the museum. The museum is is um, kept abreast of where they are in the curriculum, what they're trying to learn, and what the specific objective is when the students go to visit a museum or art gallery. So it's, it, it, there's this kind of collaborative sense in Finland that everyone is involved in and can make a contribution to uh, the education of their children. And so it's not just something that's done in school. Uh, it reaches beyond the, uh, the school walls. Bob, are you familiar with uh, Yong Zhao? And have you ever uh, been in a dialogue about his sense that uh, those PISA tests and other tests aren't actually measuring the things of value in American business. It seems like you'd have a unique perspective on that, having been so actively involved as a businessman. Yes, I know him quite well. We had a head-to-head uh, a, uh, debate at Indiana University uh, about two years ago. And he and I view the world very, very differently. Uh, you know, I'm not an educator. I don't have a degree in education. You know, I have an MBA from Harvard. And I, uh, I, I start and build new companies, and I've been involved in 30 high technology companies around the world in, in my career. I've had losers, and I've had huge winners. So um, I come at the world, and I come at this education more as someone who hires uh, the well-educated. And, and going back to my original, when I started and talked about my company in Bangalore that had 100 software developers, well, that company now has 1,100, um, because that's where we can find the talent. Uh, you know, the United States only graduates 60,000 engineers per year, and um, and so it's not a matter of I'm not trying to cut costs. In fact, it actually, it tends to be slightly more expensive because of the managers we have to fly back and forth, and and um, and the infrastructure we have to have there. Um, it's it's more and more companies that I know uh, are expanding in in Asia because that's where the Large, uh, large numbers of highly talented people are, and so, um, so Yang and I see the world very differently. He sees it from the perspective of uh, uh, Michigan State University uh, being part of the College of Education, and I see it more from uh, the perspective of an entrepreneur who is uh, is hiring people around the world and building companies. Uh, Robin's raised her hand, but there are two questions in the chat. And as a courtesy to our guests, we always end on time. So I apologize that we're not going to get to every question. Um, but Bob, uh, one question uh, that came up was, how does a Finnish school differ from the US in the lower grades? Um, I didn't, uh, I covered that a little bit in the film, and we did a little bit of research on that. Um, there's a lot more of the arts. Uh, there's a lot of uh, music and theater and, and a lot of hands-on projects. And the, the, the thing that struck me most interestingly is um, that a, a team of two teachers will stay with the same students for three or four years. So when they start the new school year, and they go the same school year length as we do. They have a three-month summer break, the same as we do. But when they start that new school year, you know, a second or third grade group, it, it's, it's for the most part the same group of students and the same teachers. So they get they they don't have um, they don't have that kind of startup lag that I see in elementary schools in America where uh, in Finland when they show up on the first day of school it's what do you guys do over the summer and you know what did the teachers do and okay let's get uh, let's get uh, down to work. 
Bob, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm clapping for you. I'm hovering over the smiley face emoticon and going down to the applause button. You can do the same. If you raise your hand, we'll understand. But uh, that's been it's been terrific to talk to you. Thank you so much for this film and the others, and for your taking time tonight to be a part of the show. Thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, next week, Richard and Rebecca Dufour on Learning Communities. Uh, after that, Howard Gardner, whom we heard about tonight. Uh, you can see the schedule up there. Sure appreciate your being a part of this, and uh, the recording will get posted later tonight. Thanks. Take care, everyone. <laughs>